Let us pray for God by his spirit to open our hearts and our minds to illumine to us the meaning and the application. Paul wrote to Timothy that the word of God is breathed out or inspired by God and it's useful so it bears this fruit. It's profitable for teaching, correcting, reproving, and training in righteousness that the man of God would be thoroughly equipped, would be complete. And that word complete means whole or mature. So whenever we come before the word of God, it is to mature us so that we can, as God's family, be purified unto him to worship him. So let's go before the Lord and ask his spirit to truly open our minds and our hearts this morning. We come before you, Father, and we ask that you would give us eyes to see, ears to hear, that we would behold wonderful things, wondrous things written of you and your word, that we'd fall in love with you. We pray, Father, that your spirit would teach us, be our teacher, counsel us, guide us, lead us into all the truth, that, Lord, we would also receive your word with soft hearts, tenderly knowing that even as you challenge us and confront us, you're going to do so not to get us or punish us, but you're going to do so to train us, to equip us, to really to, to lead us and to make us more human. So, Father, I pray for our time in your word this morning that it would be pleasing to you. In Jesus' name, amen. I asked us to do this this week, and I'm going to do it again this morning. If you're able, if you're not, it's perfectly fine. But as we read God's word, I just feel like it's appropriate if you're able to stand. So let's stand as we read together. We are, as Carl said, we are looking at Psalm 16 this morning. So Psalm 16 begins, Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones, in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be shaken. Therefore my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. (coughs) Excuse me. We have been looking this summer at the Psalms, and the way we're going about it is we're studying studying them from the perspective, so we're not going 1 to 150 and spending now till I'm about 73 years old looking at all of the Psalms. What we're doing is taking a look at them from the perspective of the various genres of the Psalms. We mentioned early on that the, that the Psalms as kind of a prayer book, the hymn book, the worship material of the church of the Old Testament express the ups and downs of human life. They go through the day-to-day of human life. And so the genres, either by uh, structure, by tone, by their emotional tone, by the context, by the setting, they can be lumped into different kind of uh, perspectives. They give us, in fact, you read and you listen to the, the clue, and they'll give us an interpretive clue, kind of a reading strategy, if you would. So, for example, when all of a sudden you read something like, bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name from Psalm 103. That's a hymn. 
That's a psalm of praise. That is celebrating the goodness and the glory of God. That is just uplifting God. Or, for example, when we read like we do in Psalm 13, How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? Well, different than bless the Lord, O my soul, isn't it? That's a lament. That's the turmoil of the psalmist's heart. And now we've moved on to the third, in a way, genre or groupings of psalms that we've called confidence or assurance psalms. Like, I loved that hymn, that psalm that we just sang that Carl chose for us. And if you notice, in the top left-hand corner of it, it said assurance. It gives you even a clue. What is trying to be communicated here from Psalm 16? And it's a very interesting psalm because it begins sounding much like a lament. Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. Sounds like the psalmist, in this case, David, he's the author, sounds like he's in trouble, doesn't it? Save me. Preserve me. In you I take cover. Keep me safe. But as it proceeds, we see David developing trust and assurance and confidence because it is a psalm. It's a song that is walking us through how to cultivate trust and confidence in the Lord. And the theme of the psalm is the way to develop ongoing or a deepening trust and assurance in the Lord is by having one's affections, one's mind, one's heart, one's understanding centered on and governed by the Lord. In other words, confidence comes from the disposition and orientation of one's life being more and more God-centered. Perhaps there's no one better who illustrates for us than the great reformer of the 16th century, John Calvin. It's pretty interesting. We focus so much on his teaching and theology, and, and rightly so. Keep studying his teaching and theology. But you know, I think sometimes we miss how much we can learn from looking not just at his teaching and theology, but his life. For example, Calvin himself, when speaking of his conversion. So in other words, here's Calvin giving his testimony. You know, like we just had the college students here, and they just left this past week. Part of their training, part of it, they all learn how to give a testimony. Here's Calvin giving his testimony upon his conversion. He said, God subdued my heart to teachableness. For Calvin, that was his conversion. For me, that may be year 40 of my sanctification. I think I'm still working on that one. Can any of us say, God subdued, quieted my heart to, teachful, to teachableness. <clears throat> it's interesting. I did some research this week. It's interesting if you read the beginning parts of his, kind of his magnum opus, his great work called The Institutes of the Christian Religion. You get different contemporaries of him that made some phenomenal quotes about him. One was made by an English poet, a man by the name of Sir Philip Sidney, who said, it is the heart that makes the theologian. And in Calvin's greatest work, his Institutes, in the introduction to the Institutes, it was written of Calvin that the secret of his mental energy, the secret of the fact that he wrote commentaries, he preached sermons, he conducted a church in Geneva, he wrote his Institutes, he wrote letters and tracts to fellow pastors. The secret of all of that output, all of that achievement, all of that production, it was said that it lies in his piety. It lied in his holiness and his godliness. The product of his piety was his theology, which was described as his piety described at length. And listen to how Calvin defined piety. He said, piety is that reverence joined with the love of God, which the knowledge of his benefits induces. 
And piety exists when men recognize that they owe everything to God, that they are nourished by his fatherly care, and that he is the author of their every good. Do you hear what that is saying? Piety is not, I think Calvin gets a bad rap, by the way. I think you say the word Calvin and we listen, we're thinking, austere, hard, harsh, tough. Listen to that. It's reverence joined with warmth and love of God that is produced by a knowledge of his benefits. The fact that he tends and cares for us as a father, that he's merciful to us, that he trains us. It is what the knowledge of his benefits induces. And one other person, a Scottish theologian and church historian by the name of Mitchell Hunter, wrote a work, wrote a book on the teachings of Calvin. And listen to what he said. He said, for Calvin, piety was the keynote of his character. This reverence joined with love of God, which God being the author of his every good, of his every blessing, nourish and nurture in his life. He said that was the keynote of his character. He called him a God-possessed soul. He wrote of Calvin that theology was no concern to him as a study in himself. He still devoted himself to it, but not with theology as the end game, so to speak. But he said theology for him was a framework to the support of all that godliness and religion and piety meant to him. Do you hear that? For Calvin, what started and fueled and governed his study and writing and teaching of theology was that reverence joined with love of God. It was that warm spirit, the orientation and disposition of his life that was governed by knowing God himself, his affections being oriented toward and set upon God. That's Psalm 16, ladies and gentlemen. That's Psalm 16. The practical question is, how do we cultivate that in our lives? How do we develop that? Little by little, how do we begin to cultivate that? And the psalm teaches us that there are two ways to do that. First, we need to cultivate single-mindedness. And secondly, we need to cultivate security. And I'm choosing my words carefully. You don't arrive here all at once. This is not a matter of feeling pressure, but you cultivate. This is what you're seeking to, you be intentional to cultivate single-mindedness. Now, the psalm, as a poem is divided into two stanzas, the first one being verses 1 through 6, the second one be, second stanza is verses 7 to 11. Beginning with 1 through 6, it begins, Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones, in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or even take their names on my lips. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. Okay, let's put this in context. As we've been going through the Psalms, I've mentioned to you that the titles of the Psalms are not part of the inerrant word. So we can't look at them and say, that's God's word. But they're instructive. They teach us. They give us a little bit about the historical setting or the context and the author in which it was written. So in other words, it gives us a clue as to the circumstances so that when we read it, we go, oh, that's what was going on in such and such life. That's what was happening. And here, in this case, we read that this was a miktam of David. 
Now, of course, I read that earlier this week, and I thought, okay, am I going to even comment on that? What in the world is a miktam? I'm lost. I got the David part down pretty, pretty good. But what in the world is a miktam? So I looked at it, and it said, it is a musical or a liturgical word. And then I went, okay, I'm not sure that helps me anymore because I'm not a musician or anything such as that. But then I continued to uh, research a little bit, and it says, the word itself is a word that resembles, in the original, the word for cover. So a covering, a cover for David. And then this is important because that might suit verse 1 of this psalm where David is crying out, keep me safe, preserve me, protect me, take care of me, for in you I take cover. Literally, God is my covering. Now what else is interesting is when you begin to look throughout the Psalter as a whole, I discovered that there are six miktams of David in total, five of them are in book two of the Psalter, Psalms 56 through 60. And each of these five Psalms, 56 through 60, is a miktam, and then Psalm 16 makes the sixth one. And four of these, Psalms 56 and 57 and 59 and 60, include in their heading events that were going on in David's life. So, for example, in Psalm 56, we read when the Philistines seized David. And then Psalm 57 says when David fled from Saul in the cave. So in other words, these were part of, these miktams were written, were composed, were put together during times in David's life where, let's see, I'm being seized by the Philistines. Doesn't sound like a fun time to me, does it to you? Or I'm hiding out in a cave from the former king who is seeing how much other people love me, is growing in bitterness and jealousy, and, oh, he's not taking it so well. What does he want to do? He's out to kill me. Huh. And then you start to look. So what do we learn? So although we can't be completely certain, Psalm 16, it does say it's a miktam, so if it is related, all of a sudden we can see if it's related to the same collection, it might have a similar theme. And the theme is how to cultivate trust, how to cultivate assurance, how to cultivate confidence during a time when you're feeling you're in exile and you're lonely and things aren't going so well and you're alienated and you're feeling alone and abandoned. And he mentions that in the psalm. Part of this security and the assurance we will get to is you will not abandon me. In context, David is sensing this. The circumstances of life are breathing down my neck. And where does he find his hope? He cultivates single-mindedness in the Lord, his covering. In the Lord, his safety net. In the Lord, his protection. One commentator on the psalm put it, says, while as an outlaw... David keeps moving from place to place all over the southern wilderness, and God is himself his refuge everywhere, regardless of place. It's not like David's in the sanctuary or in the temple or in the safety of his home. He's in a cave, on the run, fleeing. He says, preserve me, O God. Now, how does David do this? Practically speaking, he cultivates single-mindedness and intentionality. Look at the text. After his opening prayer, his opening calling out, preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge, he proceeds in verses 2 through 4 to do three things. 
He makes a declaration. He states the delight of his heart, and he makes a dedication. In verse 2, he makes a declaration. Notice the wording, I say to the Lord. He's declaring something. What does he declare? He's making his declaration. He says, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. Now listen to the text. Listen to this. You are my Lord. When you make a declaration to that, what are you saying? You're saying, you are my sovereign. You are my master. You are my supreme. And you're also saying, nothing else is. My career, in a sense, David's saying, my kingship could go down the drain, could go in the toilet. You are my Lord. I may lose my life. You are my Lord. It is, in a sense, relativizing and putting everything else in perspective. And then he goes even further in terms of putting everything in perspective. When he evaluates, he makes the declaration, you are my Lord, and then he makes an evaluation upon that. If you are my Lord, I have no good apart from you. In other words, you are my everything. And you might be sitting back and saying, well, wait a second, I have no good? I thought my family was good. Yeah, they're a blessing, but they're secondary to the Lord. Aren't my children good? Yes, secondary to the Lord. I have no good. The Lord is ultimate. Nothing else in our life is ultimate. Then in verse 3, notice the single-mindedness, the intentionality. This is what it takes to cultivate this. When was the last time you said, I will say to the Lord? Does that characterize our prayer lives, our walk with Jesus? Then look at verse 3 and his delight. And his delight, this is amazing, it's in the, Lord, the Lord's people. Now again, if this is in context, if he's in exile, what is he doing? He's saying, as for the saints in the land, as for the holy ones, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. So here he is, possibly on the run, and what he's saying, oh, I long for worshiping with God's people. Oh, I long for rushing to the Lord's house to sing, blessed be the name of the Lord. For rushing to the Lord's house to sing, great is thy faithfulness. To rushing, they are the excellent ones. They are my heart's delight. Community cultivates the intentionality and single-mindedness of David. And then in verse 4, he states his intention to serve and worship the Lord and the Lord only. Listen to his dedication. He says, the sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. Now, he may even be thinking here of Israel's history. When they run, and the word for run after means pursue with great urgency, chase after with a tremendous passion. Look at Israel's history and how many times they chased after the Baals the Asherah poles, all the other false gods, even in terms of how the kingship developed in Old Testament's, in Israel's history. It wasn't like they were satisfied with God as king. They basically said, you know what, we're observing the other nations, we're looking at the other nations and we're saying, huh, I'd like to be like them. I'd like to be like them, I'd like to be like the world. What were they doing? They were running after other gods. And look at David's heart. David says, the sorrows. We were created, we were built to live and to move and to have our being in God alone. If you run after other gods, doesn't mean your life would automatically bad. It does mean you won't be living and moving and having your being the way you were designed to be, the way you were created to be. It will not lead to optimum health and shalom. And David's heart, he doesn't get angry at them. 
He's looking at them with, it's almost with compassion. He says, the sorrows. I look at them and I'm going, they may have everything in the world. They may play with every toy in the world. Their life is sad. Because the sorrows of them that run after, that chase after other gods are pitiful. And then he says, their drink offerings of blood, their pagan rites, their pagan ritual. I'm not even going to participate, let alone take their names on their lips. These expressions, this declaration, this delight, and this dedication stand out, especially, especially if we contrast this and think about this as what was going on in David's life as he was doing this, if he was a man in exile. Derek Kidner, who comments on the Psalms, put it this way. He says, David is single-mindedly throwing in his lot with God in the realms of, verse 1, his security, verse 2, his welfare, verse 3, his associates, verse 4, his worship, and verse 5, his ambition. In other words, to cultivate confidence and trust in anything, not least in our relationship with the Lord, takes commitment and single-mindedness. Think about it for a second. Let me illustrate it this way. Think about what it takes for either a, a musician, a Mozart, a superstar athlete to cultivate excellence in their line of work. I was reading the following article on the former basketball player Kobe Bryant. And Kobe Bryant, who played basketball for the Lakers, played in 2012 for Team USA. And I guess it was his trainer who gave this following thing this kind of testimony of Kobe's life. And he says he went out and was there to train Kobe for Team USA. And he says all of a sudden he's laying in his hotel room and the phone rang at 4 a.m. At 4 a.m., you're not expecting a phone call, I don't think. And he looks and it was Kobe. And Kobe says, time to go. Let's get up. Meet you at the gym in a half hour. So 4.30, they're at the gym. And Kobe starts and they start with conditioning drills. And they do that for an hour. And then he hits the weight room. And he does that for an hour. Then he goes on and he starts taking basketball drills and shots and he starts doing all of that. Then finally the personal trainer is going, oh great, it's time for the team practice. It's like 8 or 9 a.m. It's time for the team. He goes, good, I'll go get a nap. So the trainer goes off because now he's practicing with the team and so from 9 to 11 he practices with the team. Then he comes back to see what Kobe's doing after that. And he notices, and he goes, there's the rest of the team, LeBron James, Kevin Durant, they're all off to the side talking, and on the other side of the court is Kobe Bryant still shooting shots. He, and he says, Kobe, have you stopped at all? No. From 4.30 to 11.30, he just kept going. And he asks, why haven't you stopped? He says, because my goal is to shoot and hit and make 800 shots. And he goes out and says... And this is what he puts in the article. He says, it's not just that he practiced with intensity. Because he says, any of us can practice with intensity. It's that he practiced with purpose. He practiced with intentionality. And he said, now we can't put pressure on, you know, we're not, we all don't have the talent, the giftedness. We're not going to be Kobe Bryant or Mozart or whatever. But we can all learn a principle or a lesson from that. No matter what you do and in whatever endeavor in life, and least of all, our relationship to the Lord, should we not move forward and cultivate intentionality? I gave the illustration of John Calvin because he had intentionality. His intention was not to study theology in and of itself. His intention was to study theology so that he could be a God-possessed 
soul. Theology was the means of him having reverence and love for God. And he studied with purpose. He practiced with purpose. David says, I declare something. I delight in something. I dedicate myself to something. He is single-minded in his intentionality. He cultivated single-mindedness. Now, if I stop there, it may be a good TED Talk, but it's not a sermon yet. Because that may inspire us, but it can certainly crush us. Because that is never enough. We need something more, don't we? We need good news. We need gospel to infuse us. And in the rest of the psalm, look at how David cultivates ultimate security. He says, I bless the Lord who gives me counsel in the night Also, my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Friends, listen to that text. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. It would not surprise me if David was not fearing, in his original context, death. If the Philistines were seizing him, if he's on the run, if he's hiding out in a cave, if he's seeking to be preserved. Do you know what keeps us from really giving our all? Fear. Fear. We think we're afraid of failure. I think we're more afraid of success. And we are ultimately afraid of abandonment. John writes in 1 John chapter 4, he says, there is no fear in love. If you're going to cultivate reverence joined with love of God, there's no fear in love. But listen to this gospel promise, this gospel reality. Perfect love. Which, what is perfect love? It's only the love of Jesus. It's not the love of your spouse. It's not the love of your family. It's not the love of any other person in your life. They may be great loves, but they're imperfect. Perfect love is only in Jesus Christ. And perfect love casts out fear. And David says, you will not abandon my soul to Sheol. Now in Acts chapter 2, on the day of Pentecost, Peter is preaching a sermon. And a lot's going on. You've got tongues of fire. You've got all these languages speaking. People are confused. They're going, these guys drunk with wine. What's happening? And Peter gives a sermon to explain what's happening. And in verse 23, he's partly explaining this. He says, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. And then he quotes... Psalm 16, saying, For David says, concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. 
See, friends, we need more than single-mindedness, and we need something that's going to help us cultivate and grow in single-mindedness. And the only thing that will do that is a security that is born of perfect love. And it's a security that is guaranteed, for there is no greater security than the resurrection. Michael Wilcock writes of this verse, of this passage, he says, In God's providence, these words that David wrote were going to apply with uncanny accuracy centuries later to David's greater descendant. With hindsight, the witnesses to Christ's resurrection realized that they had seen a man who, when actually in the grave, had not been abandoned to it, who was most truly God's holy one, and who was now, in the fullest sense, seated eternally at God's right hand. What was hope and security for David in its original setting? Return from exile. What is hope and security for you and I? The hope and security that casts out fear. The fear of ever being alone. The fear of ever being abandoned. The fear of ever being alienated. The fear of ever being exiled. That guarantee is resurrection. See, we may go through circumstances of loneliness and exile, but they do not get the final word. Why? Because of resurrection. Because you are united. Do you know what it means to be a Christian? It doesn't mean Jesus is up here and you're out here trying to follow after him. It means Jesus is in you and you are in Jesus. We are united to him. Peter said we are partakers of the divine nature. To be a Christian means you are in Christ, which means his death is your death. And his resurrection is your resurrection. Like the catechism puts it, we have already been resurrected with him now and we will be guaranteed. you want to know what you're more guaranteed than your next breath is? Transformed bodies. Resurrection future. You know how to cultivate single-mindedness? Begin to cultivate the security of the resurrection. Paul wrote to Timothy, Christ Jesus has abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. Why was Calvin a God-possessed soul? And how can we cultivate this kind of trust? How can we grow in single-mindedness? The security of the resurrection. Living in the present with the guarantee and anticipation of the future. Practice the discipline on meditating on the reality of your future. Think about your future. It is not uncertain. Your family might be uncertain. Your finances might be uncertain. Your health might be uncertain. Your future is not uncertain. Your future is defined by resurrection. New heavens, new earth. God will not abandon you to the grave. He will not let his Holy One, and you are attached to his Holy One, see decay. Do you believe that? That is incredible. That's our hope. That's our future. And the more we bathe in that, marinate in that, we can become a God-possessed soul, cultivating confidence and assurance. What was the title of the hymn, Carl, let us in? Lord, to you I fly. Don't you feel like flying to the Lord all the time? It's not just cultivating single-mindedness. It's cultivating that security that the resurrection gives. Perfect love 
casts out fear. Father, teach us to anticipate that. Teach us to live in the present with a future orientation. Not an escapist orientation, but a future orientation that we live in the present governed by, controlled by, oriented to our guaranteed future. New heavens, new earth, new bodies, bodies and souls united to fear and revere your name, to grow in that practical formation that is reverence joined with the love of God, which the knowledge of your benefits, and what greater benefit can there be than resurrection, induces. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.